Hi, I'm Greg Mustreader, and this is my podcast on rationality, transhumanism, biohacking, productivity, and trends of development in society. Today, we're gonna speak about psychedelics and the science behind them. Today, here with me is Alexander Lebedev, a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, and brain imaging researcher, an assistant professor at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Alexander collaborates with a research group from Imperial College London and he studies psychedelic drugs with them. Hi, Alexander. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for reaching out. Uh, when did your interest in psychedelics start exactly? Well, uh, there are two versions of the story, the long one and the short one. Which one would you prefer? Of course, the long one. Sure. Um, I think my interest can be traced back to uh, the times when I was a medical student. I got interested in psychiatry pretty early. I think it was the first year in the med school. So back then, I just went directly to the head of the department. Uh, it was Military Medical Academy, uh, well, you know, with all the, with all the details. Uh, so I, I came to the department head, and we had a really long conversation. I was interested in doing studies and in doing the research and being part of the research. So and we had a really long conversation. I think he just wanted to kind of figure out whether it's better to hospitalize me or, or to assign me to a really good research group. Uh, and uh, I just said that I want to study phenomenology of psychotic states, uh, the personalization phenomena. And back then I was pretty much interested in, in existential philosophy. And uh, he listened to me very carefully and said, well, it's, it's really good, really good thought, thought son, but uh, <laughs> we have a really great team who is studying psychedelic, oh, sorry, uh, who is studying uh, brain dynamics, who is studying pharmacological resistance, biological correlates of, of anxiety disorders. So that's, that's what you're gonna do, son. And uh, <laughs> uh, so the time passes by, and uh, actually that's one of those occasions when I think um, I'm really grateful for, I'm really glad that I was a part of the team from the very early days of brain imaging research in Russia. So I started working with highly resistant psychiatric patients, uh, namely people suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, some of them were extremely severe, having many years of unsuccessful pharmacological treatment, psychotherapy. Some of them were undergoing um, electroconvulsive therapy sessions. Some of them even had insulin comatose therapy. So it, you know, the situation for them was pretty desperate, and so it was for for their relatives, and of course for the clinicians who were working with them. So back then, uh, that was the first time when I got acquainted with a work by Stan Groff. Uh, it was the book uh, LSD Psychotherapy, written in uh, in the late seventy, early eighties, and uh, in his book he was describing his work with. The, the kinds of patients that I, I was I was working with. And uh, for me, I couldn't understand how come that these promising approaches that he was describing in his book are not tested these days. So I couldn't, I tried to find some evidences for the potential harms of these substances. I approached uh, teachers in the med school who didn't have much to tell, essentially. So they didn't have much information themselves. So that was the first time when I encountered a huge deficit uh, in the information concerning these substances. So then I, I, I continued on doing research with brain imaging. Um, so still keeping in mind this interest of mine. So back then I also read up uh, some classics of psychiatry, uh, like um, Carl Jaspers, for example, who was citing um, some of the other classics who described their phenomenological, their experiences with uh, psychoactive substances and psychedelics in particular, uh, linking them to, to some extent to endogenously occurring psychotic states. So I still had that really strong interest in psychedelics as a model to study some of the, uh, some of the states, some of the phenomenological characteristics of the experiences that are otherwise really hard to, uh, you know, to get a hold on. Uh, then I moved to Norway. Uh, I was after residency in psychiatry it was 2011. I defended my PhD there on the topic of uh, machine learning, applied for brain imaging data. And then once I received an invitation for a postdoc to Sweden, 
I, I, I saw a paper published by the Imperial Group uh, on, it, it was called uh, the Entropic Brain Theory, where Robin and his team was describing uh, his work with psychedelics, um, uh, kind of uh, framing it as a tool that would help us to understand some of the phenomena that I was interested in. So I, I, I attempted to reach out. So we had a really nice conversation with them, with him, and then later with David Knott. And I had a specific hypothesis that I wanted to test. I wanted specifically to study uh, phenomena of the of ego dissolution happening um, under the influence of, of these substances. Mm. So I had a specific hypothesis that I wanted to test. And uh, so they were kind enough to agree to share the data with me. So we started the collaboration, which ultimately resulted in two papers. And that's how it all started, more or less. And uh, I mean, till recently, I used to say that psychedelics is only a small portion of my research interest that it's just, it just started as a side project, as a small side project. And I have to admit that uh, every year it's becoming more and more difficult to say that it's my, you know, that that it's not among my major interests. So now I also uh, work privately uh, with people who had, for example, difficult or traumatic psychedelic experiences that, that we are trying to work it through. So it's also part of my of my private practice. So yeah, that's how it started more or less. So the first paper that we published was focused on on uh, ego dissolution phenomena um, happening under the influence of psilocybin. The next one was focused on LSD. So again, it, both of them were brain imaging papers where we explored neurocorrelates of psychedelic states. And this, in the second one, we attempted to predict lasting personality change happening after LSD session by looking at the acute changes in brain dynamics that happen under the influence of, of uh, LSD in this case. Uh, can you please uh, elaborate on uh, this uh, ego dissolution concept? Uh, I'm aware of it, but many of the followers may uh, be unaware of it. What, what does it mean? When does ego dissolve and how exactly does this happen? Yeah, it, yeah. It's interesting that uh, if you say ego dissolution to, say, a community of cognitive researchers, um, some of them actually can get aversive to it because uh, it sounds a little bit psychoanalytic and uh, there is a little bit of tension between psychoanalysis and, uh, and cognitive science. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the term ego is not, well, yeah, so Freud coined the term ego in the psychoanalytic framework, but uh, actually the phenomena that we are talking about, they've been described, you know, for, by many scholars, by many psychiatrists, by philosophers outside the context of psychoanalysis. In fact, one of the, in my opinion, best descriptions of this phenomena uh, done by Carl Jaspers, um, he was actually a heavy critic of psychoanalysis and Freud in particular. So, and he was talking about Ichstörung, uh, which in German means uh, ego disturbances. So that's how you can translate it literally. And uh, so he was talking about the phenomena that are typical for some psychotic states, for example, happening in patients suffering from schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And uh, he defined different aspects of it. Um, so there are different aspects of our sense of self. And that's also an important part of the discussion that when we are talking about consciousness, about correlates of consciousness. Uh, and I think it is very important to be very clear on what we understand before we embark on this discussion. So the point is that uh, he was talking about aberrations in self-consciousness or ego consciousness, and he defined several aspects of it. So say um, every time I talk to you, I know that I am the author of my thoughts I know that I, it is me who is generating the thoughts. So this is the sense of agency that I'm the author of my actions. But there are also all kinds of other aspects of my um, of my sense of self. For example, I know that even even though perhaps I had different thoughts in my head ten years ago, I, it was still me. And in patients with schizophrenia, both of these aspects can be very different. So they cannot. Sometimes they feel that they are not the authors of their actions. So I'm taking um, you know. A, a mug of water and a patient suffering from schizophrenia can feel that it's someone who is forcing them, who is, it's not them who are taking this, uh, this mug. So it's the external force that is doing that. So they, these aspects of their self-consciousness is being altered in these states. 
So another aspect is that uh, is the ego identity that I know I'm the one, uh, I'm the same person in time. So this also can be altered in, in, in patients suffering from schizophrenia. And finally, and uh, one of the, uh, there, there are many other aspects of the self-consciousness. And another important one is the border between, is the border between myself and the external world. So for instance, I know that, uh, that you, uh, that, um, that this table, that this mark is not the same, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not a part of me. Uh, and patients with schizophrenia, for example, they can really feel, you know, I touch the mark and they can say, well, why are you touching me? So for them in some acute psychotic states, the borders between themselves and the external world can be dissolved. And that's a particular aspect. Uh, in fact, we have also done some work studying similarities and dissimilarities of psychedelic states and, and endogenous recurring states. Some of these aspects are indeed similar between these conditions. And uh, when we are talking about the Freudian concept of ego, it's a little bit different. So it's a psychological construct that uh, if you draw parallels with, uh, uh, with cognitive science, we are more talking about um, an umbrella term um, that also spans executive functions, your ability to control yourself. So Freud understood slightly different things by when he was talking about the ego. And in the paper that we were writing, we were mostly talking about the phenomenological aspect of these experiences. So specifically, the, uh, we, you know, we operationalize this term as the sense of self. So the sense of being me being distinct from the external world. And that's something that we clearly saw was influenced, was affected under the influence of, of psilocybin. We attempted to explore the neurocorrelates of this condition. Uh, how exactly did you experiment with uh, those uh, conditions, with, uh, with ego and with uh, the changing of it, with its dissolution? Uh, which experiments did you conduct? Did you give LSD or psilocybin to test subjects and see how it goes? So uh, the way it usually works, um, so again, so there are different ways you can measure subjective experiences uh, and the method that you can employ, the most simplistic method that you can do is you can just ask people what they're experiencing. So you give them, you administer a drug and you're observing the changes that are happening in their brains um, inside an MRI camera. And then at the end of the scanning session, you ask them what they have experienced during the scanning session during while they were scanned. So they, so you scan them for 10 minutes and then you ask a bunch of questions about their, the content of their experience. And it also brings up a set of interesting philosophical discussions. So if you report that your sense of self or your ego is being dissolved, who is the one answering this? Uh, and uh, of course, it is important to keep in mind that many of the aspects that we are measuring, they are rather subjective interpretation of their experiences. And it's also indeed a limitation of many studies of this kind. So there are some workarounds, but practically in the, uh, in the setting that we are currently dealing with, we are mostly working with self-reports. So uh, kind of trip reports, but uh, not uh, the ones found on the internet, but uh, the ones uh, produced uh, under the supervision of uh, the researchers. Yeah, it's sort of a simplified version Questionnaire-based assessment, questionnaire-based strip report, indeed. So, like, on scale from 1 to 100, um, you know, tell me how much uh, your sense of self got dissolved. What were the most surprising results that you have reached? Well, for me, in general, when it comes to psychedelics, it was a huge surprise to find out about their therapeutic potential, because... Mm, I mean, I started as a very, and I, I still am a very careful psychiatrist uh, when it comes to novel approaches. Actually, psychedelics technically is not a novel approach. The science just started to revisit the, you know, the old data that we've acquired, you know, a few decades ago. Um, but what was the most surprising in general is that after I started exploring the field, after the first publication, I started looking more carefully into the potential risks associated with psychedelic use. I couldn't find really consistent evidences for potential harms that uh, I remember some of the scholars in my med school were talking about. So like uh, people who take LSD, uh, you know, they inevitably, well, a lot of them develop psychotic states, that they develop schizophrenia. Uh, 
uh, or you know that they kill themselves on you know on a daily basis after taking psychedelics. So I couldn't really find evidences for you know for the for this terrifying image of these substances really. So that was something something surprising. So I looked into the populational studies, and indeed for many drugs you see the link between. Uh, the use and risks for developing all kinds of psychiatric disorders. And for psychedelics, either we don't see really consistent evidences for that or, or you even see some predictive effects. For example, it has been shown that people who have had, who have history of psychedelic use, they tend to score lower in suicidality. They are less likely to commit violent crimes. So that was something really surprising in general about psychedelics. When it comes to uh, to my research with psychedelics, there are different projects that I was a part of, and right now we are also running a study in Sweden uh, investigating people who are using psychedelics, attempting to, to identify some uh, personality profiles of these people and how they make decisions, what kind of things they believe in, how they treat information, how they treat knowledge. But uh, as a part of the collaboration with Imperial on these experimental studies, and by the way, I was not involved in the data collection. I Yes, I was involved in data analysis and, and, and the discussions, uh, but I was not actually administering the drug in, this, um, uh, in these experiments. But what was really interesting and surprising to find out is that you can actually predict lasting changes in personality just by looking into how brain changes its activity under the influence of a drug. And we know that there are very few things that can have very profound effects on personality. Once you reach your 30s, um, I don't know, guys, how old you are, but uh, you know, the bad news is that what, 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 once we reach our 30s, most of our personality traits, they are pretty stable. And actually, uh, the personality trait openness, defining how open you are to, to novel experiences, to, to art, to different creative activities, to how much you take pleasure in when communicating with other people, it's one of the most stable personality traits. And what has been reliably shown also in experimental setting is just a single psychedelic session can make a dramatic impact on this personality trait that people after a single high dose experience with psychedelics, particularly with psilocybin or LSD, can have can develop lasting and profound changes in the personality trait openness. They the personality trait openness in these people increases. And what we saw is that people, uh, the brain dynamics of whom was the most profoundly altered, so we can talk a little bit more about it. Uh, so they developed particularly stable and, and uh, profound changes in, in this personality trait. That was really fascinating. Uh, you mentioned uh, some uh, possible negative uh, consequences of taking psychedelics and uh, Uh, the fact that they are mostly like stereotypes around these substances that many people believe in, such as if you take LSD or, or mushrooms or mescaline, uh, you may end up uh, psychotic or you may end up suicidal, you may end up uh, uh, maybe with uh, schizophrenia. Uh, and you said that uh, you were surprised to find out that it's, it's, it's not true. Uh, is it... Uh, Is it uh, impossible to develop such states of mind or is it just rare? And if it's uh, rare, what are the chances? Because from my personal experience, I have many friends who are interested in uh, trying uh, psychedelics but are afraid of these negative side effects and they've read all kinds of literature and posts on the internet uh, uh, describing various pros and cons. They are inspired by various uh, uh, good effects that this might have on On them on the self-exploration and and stuff like that but they are uh, apprehensive about pos possible negative effects uh, don't they sometimes occur yeah first and foremost I have to say that there are risks um, there are risks in everything we do so whenever we go out we you know we, ex we are exposed to elevated amount of risks in general and uh, psychedelics is you know they are no exception here and definitely If not treated carefully, um, if we are talking about some unsafe environments, they can really pose serious risks for mental health and for people's safety. Um, these risks are real, but they are manageable in clinical setting in carefully screened people uh, when 
we are talking about professional interventions uh, by spe- by specifically trained specialists. So, and I also need to be clear that I am talking about my work and about my plans to expand on this work. I'm talking about medical research of the substances in a, in a clinical setting for people who are really in need. So now, um, despite the fact that large-scale population studies do not seem to show extreme risks for mental health, uh, we should be aware that there are perhaps some vulnerable population that can be particularly sensitive to these substances. And uh, there are some studies uh, published from the uh, from Johns Hopkins group that are discussing these potential dangers, even in the clinical setting, indeed. Uh, for example, when we are talking about these kind of studies, people, not only people with a history of psychotic states uh, with schizophrenia, but even people who have close relatives suffering from schizophrenia spectrum disorders, they are excluded from these kind of studies because we believe that uh, they are at risk for developing adverse reaction to these substances. So it should be taken seriously and very carefully. So uh, other than that, uh, we know that uh, there are several factors that are influencing the content um, and the outcome of a, of a psychedelic experience. So there is an old concept of set and setting. So what kind of mindset yeah. and the environment that the person is in before entering a psychedelic state, we know that it matters a lot. And uh, say, uh, for example, psychedelics are taken by thousands of people, you know, on rave festivals, uh, you know, in all kinds of settings. And we don't see a remarkable, um, you know, resolution of their psychological conflict, uh, conflicts, uh, you know, this solution of their, of their struggle in life. So be- because it is important to keep in mind that we are t- when we are talking about application of psychedelics, especially in the medical setting, it's not just the effect of a drug. We are talking about psychedelic-assisted therapy. Uh, some, of the, some of the authors who worked with psychedelics clinically, like Stan Grove, for example, he, would, he compared psychedelics with catalyzers that can enhance some of the psychological, some of the, some of the processes uh, of the mind uh, by making them more available to interventions. So and that's something that we should always keep in mind. So say if you are entering this realm um, in a depressed state, uh, in an unsafe environment, without proper supervision, without having some psychological difficulties uh, that perhaps need, you know, need to be worked out before, before that, if you're entering this realm unprepared, then of course the risks of having adverse effects, having the so-called difficult trips, they are higher and they should be taken seriously. Another thing, uh, when we are talking about effects of the substances on suicidality, on, on potentially dangerous behavior, we should also keep in mind that these risks can also be real. And yes, indeed, there are cases on festivals when people, you know, say there was one event uh, on Burning Man, I can't remember which year it was, when a person just walked into the fire, uh, you know, and just died. Yeah. Uh, so these things happen, uh, and it may well be possible that other things happen, especially once we embark, once the substances become available for clinical practice. But it is also important to keep in mind that many other substances have these sorts of risks too. For example, SSRIs, so the most commonly used type of antidepressants. We know today that the first few weeks of when we start treatment with SSRIs, this initial period is associated with uh, elevated risks for suicide and for other kinds of dangerous behavior. So we are aware of these risks and we are trying to mitigate them by say, um, if this is a really serious situation, we are trying to start the first treatment in a hospital environment. We are sometimes co-administering other substances that calm down the anxiety that may, you know, that may pop up in the initial days of the SSRI treatment. So we know that there are risks. We know that people, uh, Sometimes under the influence of SSRIs, especially in the early, uh, in the initial stages, they can take their own lives. And in fact, um, uh, once the first SSRIs became available, they, well, media portrayed them. I think that one of the first papers called them um, the killer drugs, uh, because indeed there were some cases Mm. when people committed suicide at the time. I think it was Prozac, if I remember correctly. So the point is that if nowadays a person commits suicide at the influence of SSRI in the initial days, you know, we know that this happens, but you rarely read it in the media 
that you know that this event happened. Um, same with alcohol. It's unfortunately already became you know a part of our a new norm. You know that people commit crimes that they kill themselves under the influence of alcohol. In fact, more than fifty percent of uh, of suicide uh, victims they have traces of alcohol in their blood. And similar statistics uh, are available for people committing violent crimes. So indeed, so alcohol can be associated with a large portion of this crime, especially the, the numbers are even more horrifying for murders. The point is that I'm tr- the point that I'm trying to make is that there are risks associated with all kinds of human activities, with all kinds of drugs and psychedelics, they are no exception. So we need to understand these risks and we need to know how to mitigate them. Okay, so uh, we're both we're both on the same page that uh, set and setting are very important and that uh, uh, if you treat psychedelics uh, the right way, uh, the careful way, you might uh, reap some good rewards. Uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, your research group has made some progress on uh, uh, studying how there may be some profound changes in the uh, in the good way in the psychic of uh, a person. Can you give me a couple of examples? Mm, yeah, and again, I just need to be clear that when we are talking about potential uh, positive effects of psychedelics, I want to make it clear that... Um, I am mostly talking about clinical populations who are really in need of this. So I, I also want to be clear that I don't want to, to advertise these sorts of substances for the recreational use. And uh, I think we need to be careful. There are many unknowns that we are still facing. And uh, I think we are still in a fairly early stage of the research trying to understand that even though we don't have very clear evidences for serious harms for, you know, for healthy population but i still we think i still we still need to be very careful when we are when we are talking about recreational use i think there is still a long way to go so now when uh, uh when you asked about uh the research that our group is currently doing so right now we are running a study that attempts to investigate uh how the history of different drug use and psychedelics in particular uh and the amount of exposure to different drugs how whether there is an association with what kind of stuff people believe in, whether those who use psychedelics, they are more or less inclined to believe the sources of media, uh, how they treat evidences. So so this is a purely observational study, so it's not an experimental study. So we are screening a large Swedish population of drug users. Uh, It's an anonymous study, so we have several... Uh, stages of screening, and we are evaluating, uh, first of all, their uh, psychopathological profiles. Uh, So we are exploring whether the use of uh, different drugs is linked to, you know, different subclinical manifestations of psychopathology, in particular uh, with some symptoms typical for schizophrenia spectrum disorders. And spoiler alert, uh, we find no evidences for uh, not only for the fact of use of psychedelics, but also the total exposure exposure to psychedelics, which we measure as the frequency and recency of drug use, how long it has been since the last intake. And we even find uh, some, I wouldn't call them positive effects, but maybe a better word would be protective effects uh, in some of the experimental settings that we are employing. So we also invite a subpopulation of these people to our lab to do some cognitive testing, and we have several tasks that evaluate um, how, how inclined you are to modify your interpretations of the events based on the incoming information. So uh, there are different experimental tasks that would allow you to do that. So for example, a typical one is bait task, uh, the bias against this confirmatory evidence. So it's a kind of bias that is typical for uh, schizophrenia spectrum disorders, and the task is fairly simple. So I tell you a story that gradually develops. So and uh, sentence by sentence, I give you additional information. And then you have different interpretation of what the story is. 
So Alexander, you mentioned that your research group has found some uh, possibility of some long-lasting positive effects on the uh, psychological state of people and their personality traits. Uh, can you please tell me more about it? What exactly did you discover? Sure, um, but before I do that, I need to be really clear that we, when we are talking about potentially positive effects, I am mostly interested in clinical applications of this application of these substances. Um, it's, uh, um, I just wanted to be clear that I'm staying away from sort of advertising these drugs for recreational use. I think we are at fairly early stage of this research and we need to be extra careful when, when talking about this. So when I say that uh, there are potential benefits of these drugs, I'm, I'm, I first and foremost talk about uh, clinical populations of patients who are in desperate need for, for help. Um, so what we do see, though, is that indeed, even in people who use the substances recreationally, uh, there are differences in personality and there are some evidences suggesting causal links of this association. So indeed, we know that from the, from the experimental settings is that a single dose of psilocybin, of psilocybin can induce profound changes that are long-lasting in a personality trait openness. So that's what we also see in our studies uh, of, the, um, of the Swedish population. So the project that we are currently running, it pertains to the population of drug users in Sweden. Um, I mean, we started advertising the study first uh, as an international one. So we, collect, we are screening all kinds of drug users uh, worldwide. But we have a specific interest uh, in the Swedish population because we also have a group of people from this screening pool, screen pool that we are inviting to the lab to do some testing. So, uh, and we first, we do an extensive screening of their um, psychopathological profile with a major focus of uh, on sub subclinical manifestations of uh, schizophrenia spectrum symptoms. Um, so say uh, different psychosis-like states and usual experiences, some cognitive aberrations that are typical for schizophrenia spectrum disorder. And spoiler alert, we don't find any association, any strong association uh, between psychedelic use and, uh, and, and these aspects of psychopathology, even in, at subclinical level. And we also, in addition to just evaluating the fact whether or not they have used psychedelics at some point in their life, we are also uh, employing an extended assessment of their drug use patterns. So we are looking at the total exposure to different kinds of drugs uh, by evaluating the frequency and recency of drug use. So how long it has been since the last intake of a particular drug. So and we don't see any links to psychopathology if we evaluate it just as the fact whether they've used that at some point in their life or if we evaluate it as a total exposure. So those who use psychedelics more frequently, they don't seem to have any elevated scores on, on uh, subclinical manifestation of, uh, of symptoms that are typical for schizophrenia spectrum. So then we also invite... Uh, what, 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 uh, sorry for interrupting. What was the sample size in that uh, research? So we screened a total of 1,000 people. Mm, and all of them tried psychedelics. Yeah, and of them, I think... Half, half of this population tried psychedelics approximately. So we were also trying to target specific groups where we think that psychedelic use is more common. Um, and, you know, of course, there were people who used only psychedelics. There were people who used psychedelics and other drugs. There were, of course, plenty of people who used alcohol and tobacco um, stimulants. So we're screening for different kinds of drugs. But we, okay. uh, well, ultimately, we screened a total of over 1,000 people. Okay, so no correlation between the psychedelic use and uh, additional risks of schizophrenia. What else? Correct, correct, correct. Even subclinical. So one of the, because there is a still, and there is still an ongoing discussion about potential harms of uh, psychedelics for, for at-risk populations. Uh, and uh, in fact, the very first studies that uh, that attempted to to explore the link between psychedelic use and uh, and risks for developing psychosis in particular, they did find some links. But you know, it also depends how you 
how you do this sorts of study. So because people who use psychedelics, they use all kinds of drugs. Uh, they may use other drugs. And you know, we know that in general, the use of illicit substances is associated, all kinds of illicit substances per se, is associated with more with having more mental health problems. So in general, people who have more mental health problems, they are more likely to use different kinds of substances. But when we are talking about populational studies, it is important to tease out to control for different drugs that are in use in this population. So for example, uh, there are some people who use only psychedelics. There are people who use psychedelics and tobacco. There are some people who use psychedelics, uh, stimulants, hearing, for example, or have used at some point. Um, and when we are investigating these associations, we have all parameters in our model that, that, that provide us an opportunity to dissolve the independent effects of different drugs. And when we control for different kinds of substances, uh, stimulants, tobacco, alcohol, um, cannabis, we find no strong, well, no association whatsoever between even subclinical manifestations of psych uh, psychopathology um, and the fact that they have used psychedelics at some point in their life. And what about the positive effects? Well, um, I would also stay away of framing it as positive per se, because, um, I mean, even, even changes in personality and a trade openness, uh, when we are talking about it, I mean, many people assume that it's necessarily a positive change. And it's also... Not necessarily. Uh, yeah, and it is, a, it is an assumption uh, we need to keep in mind, because... Uh, every change, um, every difference that we find, it can be beneficial and disadvantage, and, 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 and you know, frankly, bad in some contexts, in different contexts. Uh, well, and we know that different people are affected. Personality of different people is affected differently uh, by the same drugs, by uh, by the same amount of drugs, by the same doses. So there are many unknowns that we are that we still need to explore, but what we do see is that if we we also have a subpopulation of this screened people that we invite to our lab to do some testing, and what we do see is that in a, in an experimental setting that evaluates how you treat information, how likely you are to modify your interpretation based on the incoming information, it is. People who, who use psychedelics, they are more likely to modify their initial assumption when facing with facts. So one example of these sorts of tasks mm -hmm. is bait or bias against disconfirmatory evidence. So it's a typical cognitive bias that we often see in patients with schizophrenia and also with uh, in at-risk subjects who are at risk for developing psychosis and people screen high on schizotypy. So uh, we know that this is a kind of cognitive bias that is typical for this cluster of psychopathological symptoms. And uh, well, the task that is typically used to evaluate this bias, mm, you know, imagine that I tell you a story sentence by sentence. And once I start the story, you are provided with different interpretation of how the story will develop further. So say Mary receives a letter and then you have several interpretations. So uh, um, her mother died. Uh, she is excited about uh, Christmas and so forth. And then I start feeding you with new information. So next sentence tells you, and then she smiles. And then probably it's not something about her, you know, her mother's death. It's probably something positive. And then you start modifying your predictions, your interpretation of how the story would develop further. And ultimately, I give you more and more information. Then, you know, she opens a letter and uh, then looks under the, uh, under the Christmas tree. And then, yeah, it's, it becomes crystal clear that we are talking about uh, Christmas. So in how people modify their initial interpretation as the story develops, can tell a little bit about you, how likely you are in general to modify your initial expectations about your uh, about the environment, about uh, different facts as you are provided with more facts. And we know that in people with schizophrenia, 
uh, these processes can be really altered. So uh, they indeed exhibit the so-called bias against this confirmatory evidence. So they are more likely to stick to their initial interpretations of how the story would develop. So we didn't see that in psychedelic users. We saw quite the opposite, that they were more sensitive to the incoming information. They were more flexible when it comes to modifying their expectations as the story develops. Uh, so does this mean that people who use psychedelics are more likely to be rationalists, to be able to change their mind when they encounter uh, facts that, they, that disprove their position, their stance on some subjects? So does this make you uh, more prone to, to, to being uh, fluent in the methods of rationality? From a statistical standpoint, the answer is yes. So this association exists, we see that. But then the chicken and the egg question comes in. And that's something that we know is very challenging in cross-sectional studies. So it's, you know, all the measures that we are collecting, they are retrospective. Uh, so ideal scenario would be to test this kind of stuff in a clinical and experimental setting, for example, in clinical trial and see whether we see these changes experimentally if you randomize the groups and then, you know, you give once a group, um, you know, those of psilocybin and then you measure these aspects in an experimental setting. Uh, so it is important to keep in mind that it could be the opposite interpretation that maybe people who, uh, who are more careful when it comes to incoming information, who are likely to modify their opinions, they're just more likely to use the substances. So this interpretation- They are more open-minded, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, that being said, um, in our study, we also measured the amount of exposure, as I said recently, to the drug. So we also measured frequency and recency of drug use. And we saw that this affects even stronger in those who have used the drugs more recently, who use psychedelics more recently. So we do have some potential, you know, evidences for potential causal links in this direction. But you know, we are still need we still need to be very careful when it comes to the interpretation of these effects. So only a, a full-on um, randomized clinical trial uh, experimental setting would allow to, you know, to give a definite answer about the causal link. Yeah, that's that's the that's always the problem with psychedelics research. There is not not enough of it, and uh, too too many countries have banned it. Uh, I was quite surprised to hear this correlation and maybe even causality between rationality and use of psychedelics, because you know all these uh, stuff, uh, Timothy Leary, uh, and all these esoteric uh, uh, kinds of stuff that. Uh, psychedelics enthusiasts like to speak about. Uh, many people who try LSD or mushrooms uh, end up uh, starting believing in some higher being in, in God or maybe in interconnectedness of everything. Uh, this uh, doesn't exactly sound like uh, rationality to me. Uh, yeah, so far we, well, this, yeah, this, I, well, this, story doesn't really hold according to our data. I mean, we, we are still embarking on another project that would attempt, hopefully, that will would allow additional data about that. So we can also measure people's belief in different conspiracy theories. And, you know, there is a big story uh, about why psychedelics got prohibited. And, you know, I'm not a particularly big fan of, you know, conspiracy theories about, about this, about this surrounding this story. But, you know, there are some scholars who believe that psychedelics got banned for political reasons because they actually influenced people's beliefs. And uh, uh, I think it's an interesting hypothesis, uh, which, you know, may be interesting to test. And that's what we are attempting to do in our future studies. Ah, so you are going to test whether it, you are more likely to be uh, prone to all those ideas if you have tried psychedelics. Well, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, what, else, what else have you found out? So uh, uh, you, you mentioned that you are now uh, also uh, a psychiatrist and a, a psychotherapist who works with people with some mental problems and uh, uh, some of them take psychedelics under your supervision or not? Uh, no, I am not. And yeah, that's something that I am very clear from the very start once mm -hmm. I start working as a, as a, as a therapist. So I don't supervise psychedelic sessions because it okay. is illegal. 
it is illegal in Sweden, it is illegal in Russia, and I am, you know, I am crystal clear about that that I am not violating any any laws. And uh, but what okay, I can yeah, do, yeah, yeah, what I what I do work with sometimes is a psych- is difficult experience that people might have had with psychedelics. So that's also uh, well, probably deserves a separate story. So uh, indeed, for some people psychedelic experience does not go smoothly and especially you know as we talked uh, some time ago is that if you take if you have a psychedelic experience in a really unsafe and uncontrolled setting with people you do not trust uh you know in a state of mind that is you know linked some depressive ruminations if you know if you just you know frankly take it in a you know in a bad mood you know, if you have a lot of psychological baggage that, you know, may require walking through in a psychotherapeutic context, if you are unprepared to this experience, it can really go bad sometimes. And you can be even re-traumatized after a psychedelic experience. That's something that we need to keep in mind, definitely. So, and uh, sometimes people who are reaching out, who want me to work with them as, you know, uh, who are reaching out looking for a therapist, uh, they want to work their experiences through. And indeed, even the most difficult experiences with psychedelics, they can be used um, as, as a material, as important material in psychotherapeutic work. So I'm not encouraging people to take them, uh, you know, to, to have another psychedelic session. You know, I'm not even sending any references to, to healing centers that exist, say, in, the, in, in Holland that would allow them to do that legally. So I'm really crystal clear about that from the start. But I do work with difficult experiences, with recollection, sometimes, because especially after heavily difficult experiences, they, um, they still impact people's well-being. Sometimes, you know, they have repeating dreams of the, you know, that resemble some aspects of their difficult experiences. And we are trying to trace back why they had a particular kind of experience. And in fact, there are studies showing that even the so-called bad trips, um, uh, when worked through with a therapist, they may have beneficial effects on well-being because, yes, indeed, uh, it is an important question to answer why a particular person had, you know, a difficult experience. Sometimes, uh, it well in a in a symbolic way in a psychedelic state pers- a person can re-experience an old ch- an old trauma from their childhood uh you know which is suppressed suppressed and you know that they that is still influencing their behavior but they are not exploring it and you know when they take psychedelics their psychological defenses are, are falling down and then they they get this experience they come back to this to this old memory of traumatization. And that's something that I can work with, with people who are in need. So you mentioned that uh, you were surprised to find out that uh, psychedelics may have some uh, uh, therapeutic uh, use. And you said that you yourself uh, do not administer them, do not refer people to uh, centers, healing centers that administer them. Uh, why don't you, if you believe that they may have psych- uh, psychotherapeutic use? Yeah, the question is, well, the answer is very simple because it is illegal. And uh, I think that I can contribute to this line of research as a brain imaging researcher, as a therapist, I can help people. I mean, if I if I'm just sent to prison because I do illegal stuff, I cannot help people who I can help today. Is it illegal even to tell people to go there? Yes. Like, it's yes. A, like your patient uh, in Sweden says that he's got such and such problems and you say psychedelics might help you, but it's illegal here. So go to Holland or go to uh, the Caribbean, I don't know, Mexico. Uh, so is it prohibited? Even it is. It is illegal to even some mm. in some countries, uh, specifically in Russia. It is illegal to tell people that psychedelics can help you. Um, it is important to keep in mind, uh, and which, which is really crazy. Well, you know, the thing is that uh, well, there are very few situations when you can actually say. I will. Exp- I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, Yes, indeed, there are some situations. Uh, well, definitely, we know that from clinical research uh, that there are some psychiatric populations, and as you know, as clinical trials show that these populations can benefit from psychedelic-assisted therapy. But here we are talking about clinical setting, 
the interventions that are conducted by highly trained, physici trained physicians, therapists, we know that the drug that is being administered is clean, that uh, the uh, staff is trained to deal with potential adverse events. And yes, we know that, you know, in a clinical setting, if we are talking about, uh, you know, uh, legal research, clinical research with psychedelics, yes, you know, there are people who are reaching me asking, you know, are there any ongoing clinical trials, say, in the United States? And I refer them, you know, to the clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, and there are, you know, there are organizations, there are universities that are recruiting patients for this sort of clinical trial. This is legal, you know. This like is, Johns Hopkins. Yes, say, for right? example, for example. But the problem with referring people to healing centers is that, well, frankly, there are different kinds of healing centers. Mm -hmm. uh, when we are talking about legal ones, yes, uh, there are good ones, but the situation may change very rapidly. So the problem is that uh, when you tell that, yes, you can benefit from a psychedelic assisted therapy, you're placing yourself in a very strange situation. There are no, say in Russia, there are no uh, legal psychedelic therapy centers. Yes, there are some healing centers in Holland, for example, but uh, you know, the situation changes rapidly. Some of them, you know, at, at some point you read some you know, feedback from people. Okay, so some horrible thing happened. Uh, And, you know, people are left with uh, long lines in clinical trials for, say, in the United States. And, of course, in the United States, they are prioritizing citizens of the United States. So it's really hard to get into. So I think in general, not only from the legal perspective, I think we should be very careful when suggesting that a psychedelic session can help people, you know, because we don't know in what situation, in what state, with what kind of stuff this person may get into a psychedelic state, uh, considering that they are still not legal. We are talking about uh, clinical research. Maybe in a few years, you know, right now we, the way it works now with, uh, with clinical trials, you know, it's, it's really remarkable. I think, uh, you know, right now we are in the middle of phase three clinical trial for MDMA. And if it is to be successful, and I think the chances are pretty high, then in a few years, MDMA will be available for first treating post-traumatic stress disorder and then hopefully for other psychiatric disorders. And then right now we are running a fairly large phase two clinical trial with, for psilocybin. And if this study is successful, then again, we embark on a phase three clinical trial. So I think this track of, you know, of clinical trials, it, it's working so far pretty well. And I think we should be very careful not to screw it up. So I think, yes, mm -hmm. indeed, we see that there are some really convincing evidence is that these substances can be useful for clinical populations. But I think that we don't need to rush what does not need to be rushed. And FDA is, a, you know, and major drug agencies, they are already collaborating with, with psychedelic researchers. We know that FDA, the major health agency in the United States, it granted breakthrough therapy for MDMA-assisted treatment of PTSD and also for psilocybin recently. So uh, this image of the governmental pressure Uh, towards psychedelics. It's, you know, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's entirely true. There are definitely organizations, major healthcare organizations that are interested in, uh, in making these drugs available for people who are in need. Uh, what about your research uh, with the Imperial College London? Is it legal uh, to research uh, psychedelics in the UK or uh, this research group also uh, does not give, uh, uh, administer any uh, drugs? Well, uh, the, the way it works, it's not that the research is illegal. It's just the substances that we are talking about, they are classified as Schedule 1 making it very difficult to conduct scientific research. So the research, you can do research with heroin as well. Uh, it's just very difficult to study uh, Schedule One substances in humans. Uh, just to, you know, to cut the long story short, there are different classes of substances and class one is probably one of the, wor one of the worst uh, to, you know, to, to work in the research context. It implies that the drug does not only have any medical advantages, any potential, but it's also very dangerous. 
Um, so, you know, leaving really no space for justification to the ethical committees, really. And, uh, you know, of course, when it comes to storage, when it comes to administration, you need to fill out lots of licenses. Uh, you know, by the time you acquire license number two, license number one gets expired. So there's, lots of, there's a lot of paperwork and there are very few companies that would allow you, that would provide you with a, with a drug of high quality that would allow you to use it in a clinical trial. So there are some standards of, uh, of drugs, like if you want to use a drug in the clinical setting, it needs to meet certain criteria, the, G, the good manufacturing practice criteria. And very few companies would provide you this or, you know, or, or charge very high. There are some workarounds seemingly these days. There are some organizations that are, that are doing that, uh, that are providing a GMP approved psilocybin in particular, but it's still very hard. So it's not that it is illegal to do this kind of research. It's just extremely hard. Well, this is simply outrageous. The fact that psilocybin uh, is considered to be in the same category as heroin or cocaine. But as you said, yeah, let's hope that uh, further research will be successful and it uh, it gets out of uh, these uh, Schedule 1 and other lists of prohibited substances prohibited for research. Uh, uh, can you please tell me more about uh, ego dissolution? This is uh, the topic that we have touched uh, a little bit, but still have not gone deep into. So you said that uh, there might be some effects on uh, uh, ego in the sense, uh, not in the Freudian sense, but in, in the general sense. Uh, I have heard some trip reports saying that uh, if one takes a huge dose of a psychedelic, one might uh, experience something called uh, ego death. Uh, is this uh, something that you have also experienced, uh, encountered with your test, test subjects? Yeah, yeah, this is a definitely related concept of the ego death uh, is just kind of a more brutal way of putting the term ego dissolution. So yeah, it's kind of an extreme case of ego dissolution. So uh, when we're talking about the ego dissolution phenomena, there is kind of a spectrum of this phenomenon. And the extreme, uh, the extreme of the ego dissolution phenomena uh, indeed is the ego death when uh, a person is, lo is losing the sense of self completely. And now when we are talking about it, we also need to mention work by Stan Grove, who particularly emphasized importance of these experiences for for treatment outcomes. So uh, he actually talked that experiencing ego death may have tremendous effects on, you know, on wide variety of, of, of psychiatric symptoms. Uh, why it, uh, it is, it, is it so? So that's, that's a separate question. So, but what we do know is that having certain kind of psychedelic experience, uh, is indeed a, uh, increases chances for observing potentially positive or therapeutic outcomes. So some groups are talking about the so-called mystical type experiences, and you know it's a uh, it's an American school um, that you know stems well. It, it it's it comes from the studies conducted conducted in the pre-prohibition era uh, by Walter mm -hmm. Panke. Uh, so essentially, uh, so what Walter Panke has done is that he collected uh, a number of reports of people experiencing um, high-dose psychedelic sessions, and then he also matched them with the mystical-type experiences or, you know, experiences that the mystics or different spiritual teachers had. And he uh, saw that there is a remarkable similarity between these experiences. So and we know indeed that... Uh, and so ultimately, he ended up developing... Uh, um, description of this mystical type experiences. So people, when people experience the profound all the, uh, the feeling of interconnectedness of all the things in the universe, the sense of oneness with everything. And uh, so one of the core aspects of this experience is, the, is that they are ineffable. It's really hard to describe them, to put them to words uh, that, you know, there are simply no words to describe these experiences. So on the ego dissolution is, uh, there are good reasons to believe that the ego dissolution is indeed in the core of these experiences. And there is a number of characteristics that uh, of these mystical type experiences that, um, that Walter Punky has described. 
So the profound sense of awe, uh, the contact with the ultimate knowledge, uh, the profound sense of love, the sense of interconnectedness of all the things in the universe, the sense of oneness. Um, and another aspect of this experience is uh, that they are ineffable. It's really hard to put them to words. Um, so people say that there's simply just no words that would allow me to describe these experiences. And uh, we have good reasons to believe that the ego dissolution phenomena and the ego death phenomena, they are indeed in the core of this experience. So in order for this other aspect of the experience to happen, one needs to experience the dissolution of the sense of self. And that's what we clearly see in subject self-reports, that the more likely, the, the more profound the changes in the sense of self, uh, the more likely the other characteristics of a psychedelic experience are to occur. Okay. Uh, Alexander, I think a question that uh, is probably by this moment nagging many of the viewers is uh, whether you personally have tried psychedelics, of course, if you are willing to speak about it. Yeah, first and foremost, I should say that um, this is a kind of question that is not welcomed by people who study psychedelics, but I have no problems uh, talking about it. Uh, but uh, since you why, asked why, that, why is it not well welcomed, by the way? It's also because it is still a very stigmatized topic, and uh, many people, you know, believe that if you take something that is considered illegal in some cultures, you know, you're doing something bad, and you know that you're maybe not as good of a researcher, you know, that, you know, you should stay away from the subject that you're investigating. But I can, you know, I can openly talk about it because I, and I will try to explain why. So since you asked this question, so please listen to a very detailed answer. So once we published the first paper uh, together with the Imperial College group, uh, which was, by the way, focused on on the phenomena that are typical for schizophrenia spectrum disorder. So my initial interest in the substances was to consider them as the ones providing model to study uh, schizophrenia spectrum states uh, that are, you know, acute psychotic states that are typical for schizophrenia spectrum disorder. And then I started looking into the literature, trying to find out, you know, maybe there is a new data that would show you, you know, the horrible risks associated with the use of these drugs. Then I encountered the uh, medical use of the substances. Uh, and uh, I was really surprised to see that, okay, so not only uh, back in the era, in the prohibition era, when, you know, Stanislaw Grof was conducting this experience, but the, this experiments, but there are new studies going on uh, in patients that are highly severe that benefit from it. And then I read papers uh, that were published by Johns Hopkins group showing effects uh, of a single psychedelic session on personality trait openness. So I thought that it would be fair, you know, if I want to study medical application of the substances, if I see that there are reasons to believe that the substances may help some people, it would be unfair not to experience it myself to understand better what kind of, what kind of experiences and what kind of substances I'm studying. So I, uh, I contacted a healing center uh, in Holland. So uh, it was organized by really experienced uh, psychedelic practitioners. So it's, you know, it was completely legal. It was done by a group of trained specialists. So I went there and had my own ayahuasca session. Um, wow. I just, I, just, I just thought that it would be fair if I want to study medicinal application of the substances. And if I see, if I am going at some point to write that some clinical population, you know, may benefit from it. I thought it would be fair to experience it myself. You know, it's a little, a little bit of an old fashioned uh, view of a researcher, but, you know, I think it's fair, uh, especially considering that I did not manage to find any severe risks associated with that. And it was done in a completely legal setting by experienced practitioners. Uh, how well did your trip go? Um, you know, the thing is about describing your own experiences is that it may have a lot of personal meaning to a person who have had that. But, you know, if I start talking about some of these things, you know, they may seem very banal. And, you know, one of the things about describing your own psychedelic experiences um, is that 
well, it is, it may be full of meaning for you, you know, considering your own background, but it may have very little sense to you, you know. Um, so for me, I acquired a lot of insights about my family, about things that are important and are not important in my life. So that was, I think, was the hallmark of the experiences that I understood what matters and what does not. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't uh, do this uh, on a constant basis. You just tried it uh, to to make sure that you understand the substance better. And uh, after that, you just uh, studying it. Yeah, I think there is a saying by Alan Woods uh, who once mentioned when when asked about you know how frequently he does psychedelics, and uh, I like this saying. He said, "You got the message. Hang up the phone." <laughs> um, and I entirely agree with this statement and I can fully relate to it. No, I don't do psychedelics on a regular basis. So I, you know, I got my message. You've got the message, hand up the phone. This has been Greg Mastreader. This has been Alexander Lebedev. And uh, we have talked about psychedelics and the science behind them. I hope that uh, in a couple of years we will have another podcast uh, where Alexander will tell us more about uh, the progress in this area and how the governments of various states have been uh, starting to legalize uh, therapeutic, maybe other use of this substance. Alexander, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me.